C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, gives what he calls a parable. He says, imagine a woman who's been thrown in prison in a dungeon. Now, he's thinking of a 19th century, you know, the 1800s kind of dungeon. And she's pregnant when she's thrown in prison, and she gives birth in prison. She has to raise her kid in prison as a boy, and as her boy grows up, She's trying to figure out a way because he's never seen the outside world. All he's seen are the four walls of this dungeon. And so she's an artist, and so she convinces the guards to bring her a pad of paper and pencils. She starts to sketch her memory of the outside world. She starts to sketch rivers and streams and fields and mountains and roads going forever off into the distance. She starts to sketch cities the waves of the beach coming in, and she's trying to give her son this sense that this dungeon, this prison is not what was meant to be in life. There's a whole world out there that he hasn't seen yet, but that's very, very real. But for whatever reason, when she draws the pictures, it doesn't quite grab his emotions. She could just tell there's just not this light on his face that she thought would be there about the outside world. And it Eventually she realizes all he's seen is inside the dungeon. He hasn't seen the perspective out there. And so he thinks what she's drawing on the page is the outside world. He thinks the outside world is pencil lines. And that's what the outside world is, just pencil lines. So when he sees what she's trying to draw as a road going off forever into the distance, he sees as a pencil-drawn triangle. He thinks the outside world are pencil-drawn triangles. And so she begins to realize it because he doesn't have any reference that he's never really going to understand, even if she tries to draw the best picture possible. The Bible has the same challenge. The Bible's trying to give us pictures of another world called the kingdom of God. The Bible's always talking about the kingdom of God and trying to help us understand, but we we don't have any reference and we can't see. And so even when the Bible tries to give us pictures, we don't always catch it. And so an example of that is in Psalm 98, verse 8, trying to describe the world when God comes back and brings his kingdom to earth. It says, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Now, often when we read verses like that in the Bible, we sort of, it's easy to get stuck analyzing the literalness of what we just read. Now, how does a river clap exactly? What does it look like for a river to clap? Rivers don't clap. How do mountains sing? I can't think of a mountain singing. We don't, we get stuck because it doesn't, it's like a pencil drawn triangle on a page. We're not able to see, in a sense, the three dimensional reality of it. So the Bible gives us other pictures, like what we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 3 miracles. Miracles are pictures to help us understand the reality of what it means that you might say we're in a dungeon now, but there's an outside world of incredible beauty that eventually is going to come and replace everything that's broken in this world. How does the Bible describe that to us? Well, one of the things the Bible says, like Paul says, it's what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man ever imagined what God has in store for those who love him. But that doesn't really describe anything. It just says it's undescribable. So we have to try to not see and get stuck 
analyzing a miracle, how does that happen exactly with the laws of physics? And we get stuck trying to look at a pencil-drawn triangle and missing the wonder of what the story is trying to show us. So let's try today to catch the wonder of what the story is trying to show us rather than just fixated on the pencil-drawn triangle. So here it is, verse 1 of chapter 3. One day Peter and John, these were some of the closest disciples of Jesus, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple. Jesus has already died, risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, and so they're going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now I put that in yellow because it's one of these things you'll see all through the book of Acts. What Richard Bauckham, a professor of New Testament theology at Cambridge University, calls the signs of memory, signs of eyewitness memory. That when you have a myth, when you have a legend, it doesn't have these kinds of things in it because myths and legend are advancing the bigger story. But when you have a detail that doesn't do anything to advance the story, it's just a detail that matters, doesn't matter to the story at all. It's a sign that this is somebody's eyewitness memory and it's just a recollection. Though, yeah, it was the time of prayer about three in the afternoon that this happened. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Verse six, then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet, began to walk, and then he went in with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Now, verse 11 says it wasn't quite him doing it by himself. He had to hold on to Peter and John while he was doing it, which is another detail, but you know, it helps us understand you know, he just couldn't just go off running. But it says, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, like all miracles in the Bible, this is a picture. Hopefully, we don't see the pencil-drawn triangle, but we see what is pointing to a greater reality. It really happened. This is an eyewitness account of something that happened, but it happened to give us a picture. And one of the pictures it's giving us is this this man who has been unable to walk since birth. There was never a time he was able to walk. He has no idea what it's like to walk. The man who's not been able to walk since birth is a picture of us in this Genesis 3 world, a world of thorns and thistles and dust and death, rather than the Genesis 1 and 2 world that God intended us to be in, where every tree is pleasing to the eye and good for food and there's abundance we're in a Genesis 3 world of dust and thorns and dust and thistle, death and thistles. And this meant to show us that there's, the, the Bible says lame, which kind of is kind of a weird word, lame. You know, we kind of use it now to mean cheesy or weak or something like that. So I'm not going to use lame because I don't think that quite captures what this story is trying to help us capture. I'm going to use an older, more offensive word, crippled. I'm going to say crippled not because I'm culturally insensitive or tone deaf, but because I think that captures the shocking reduction 
of what this man's life is like compared to what his life was supposed to be. He can't walk. And this is a shocking reduction. And it's a picture of you and me. We are crippled compared to what God intended for us. We're crippled in our view of God. Most of you believe in God. That's why you're here at church. But even those who believe in God, I don't have to know you to know that you have this view of God. Everybody in this room has this view of God that you can't quite trust him. You can't quite bank on the fact that he has your best will in mind. If you say, God, I want your will for my life, that's probably one of the scariest prayers you would ever pray. Me too. We all have this situation where it's odd, it's irrational when you think about it. The one who created this entire universe and who created us and gives us life is somebody we can't trust. It's an odd thought, but it's something we all think because we are crippled in our view of God. We're crippled in our worship, who we worship, what we worship. All these good things become ultimate desires that end up becoming idols that control us. And our worship becomes this controlling slavery in our lives because it's good things but lesser things. We're crippled in our view of ourself. Here's the odd thing. It's a paradox. At the same time, two things that are paradoxical in all of us to some degree. We have this self-hatred and self-righteousness at the same time. It's strange. But because we have this self-hatred, because we know we are our own worst enemy, and we, don't, we can't seem to do things that we wish we could do and be things we wish we could be, and at the same time, we know that others are crippled too, and their crippledness drives us nuts. And so we have this sense of self-hatred with self-righteousness because we have this sense we're not able to have committed, loving joyful relationships, but instead we have this judgmentalness. We have this unforgiveness when people do crippled things with us, against us. We have this ungraciousness toward the crippledness of others. And so you can't have that and committed relationships, joyful, loving relationships at the same time. We have this crippled sense of morality. It's almost like we change our morality every 10 years. What we were so convinced was right and wrong 10 years ago is now something completely different is right and wrong. And we're hypocritical all along the way because we judge people here and we judge people here. We give ourselves a huge pass because we're crippled in our morality. And what we're crippled in, that I don't have to prove at all, is our body. Our body, it's weird. What was meant to be this body of glory, beauty, foreverness, Awesomeness is a body that has signs of some of that. I mean, some people in their athletic skills is unbelievable. Some people in their beauty is really stunning. But then you have the reality that everybody has, and it's strange, but you get to a certain age, and you start to actually decay while you're alive. <laughs> you're walking around, and your body is starting to decay. It's the strangest thing. Your skin is starting to decay. You have organs in your body that are starting to break down. It's like we've been attacked by some parasitical wasp that has inserted some larva in us and it's eating us from within alive. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but we're walking around dying. And it's odd because that's not at all the existence we were meant to have. And then eventually there comes the ultimate reduction of death itself. We're gone. 
Where did we, where did we go? Where did, where did that loved one go that was so powerful in their personality and so present with something? They're just gone. And the Bible always talks about death being this invasion, this, this brokenness, this crippledness that is the ultimate reduction that wasn't supposed to be, and that's why it never feels like it's supposed to be. We just know it's not. Everything in our lives is crippled. Everything. But here's the interesting thing. God did, chose to do this miracle. It's exactly where he chose to do it. You read it twice, that word beautiful. God chose to do this at the entry to the temple, the presence of God on earth, at a gate called beautiful. This man, since birth, has had to be carried there. This crippled man has had to beg for his existence all of his life. There's a juxtaposition between this intention of beautiful in the presence of God and the reality of crippled and cannot even walk. And it's right there. It's right there that he's able to be restored to what God intended him to be. Let's look at how it says it here. Verse 9 when all the people saw him walking and praising God after he had been restored to being able to walk at the gate called Beautiful, they were filled with wonder and amazement at all that had happened. And all those words together, if we are able to not just look at those words and see a pencil-drawn triangle, but we're able to use our imagination to see what all of those words together are trying to give us a picture of, all of those words together, this person is able to walk and jump and leap and praise God. This person is able now to be restored to the beautiful that the body was meant to be. This person now, with what the restoration has meant, has filled everyone, himself for sure, and has filled everyone with wonder and amazement. But there was a time in this story beforehand where he's at the gate called beautiful and he's not in his mind he's going there every single day to hold out his little cup hoping that somebody could give him money of course he has no other way to make money I just want you to slow down right now I want you to imagine him right now in slow motion I want you to slow the narrative down in your head just in your imagination let's try to get this besides beyond a pencil drawn triangle and to the sign it's really trying to tell us imagine right now the this guy who was intended for so much more but all of his life he's had to be carried he can't walk his only existence is to hold out his little cup hoping for money at this gate called beautiful that shows we were meant for something so much greater in the presence of God. He's there every day. And he sees Peter and John, and I want you to slow it down even more and imagine his face when he sees Peter and John, and there's hope, there's new guys, and maybe they, they seem nice, they have a look on their face of kindness, maybe they're there to give him money, and then they say they don't have any money to give him, and I want you to imagine his face the going from hope to disappointment, maybe a little resentment, maybe a little anger. And I just want you to freeze that face in your mind and expand it now to your entire life with Christ. Is that you? 
You have what you think are your greatest needs and you hold out your little cup and you've come to Jesus for prayers. You've come to Jesus for something. Give me this, give me that. I pray that she would like me. I pray that you would heal me. I pray that you would give me this job. I pray that you would give me this money. I pray that you would give us things that are good things, things we need. But it didn't happen. And you kind of went from hope to disappointment to anger, lack of trust. And maybe that's kind of defined your relationship with God now is that he can't be trusted. He hasn't given you what you're convinced is your greatest need. And it's kind of built this sense of thought inside of you. Maybe your desires are for more than God's desires for you. Maybe your desires are greater than God's desires for you. Maybe what you want for your life is more than what God wants for you. This person was holding out his little cup every day, and when he held out his little cup and they said no, he was disappointed, but here's why they said no. They knew Jesus wanted to give him something so much bigger and better. Maybe it's the same with us. As C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Weight of Glory, that I mentioned before, he says this. He says that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Think about yourself. Are your desires too strong or too weak? How do you think God sees them? Too strong or too weak? We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And maybe you've been holding out your cup, your little cup, and Jesus hasn't filled it. And maybe it's because he wants to fill your life with the beauty and the wonder and the amazement of really restoring you. Maybe he's got this story for you that has to lead you to this place where you'll reach out for him as the author of life. You'll reach out for him as the one that is the restoration of your true beauty and wonder and amazement to what you were truly meant to be rather than just filling your little cup with what you think that need is. And so when Peter has everybody's attention, he starts to tell them what this whole thing means. And he starts to tell them, look, this shouldn't surprise you because you've been seeing this happen here recently at this temple. You, you saw Jesus do this kind of stuff. That's eventually why you crucified him. This shouldn't surprise you at all, but see, here's the thing. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, and he's still doing this right now. Notice how Peter says it. Verse 14, he says, you disown the holy and righteous one. Now, the Old Testament, the Bible of the time, the only thing, the only person they would ever say is holy, the holy and righteous one is God. So Peter is referring to Jesus as God. And he says, you disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this. 
And this is what he's doing right now because he's the one doing it, not us. And so he says, repent, therefore. Now, that's a super religious word. We get uncomfortable with that word because it's so religious and it just seems really undesirable. But see, here's the thing. This is all written in Greek. Luke was writing in very sophisticated Greek, and he's using a cultural Greek word, not a religious word, but a cultural Greek word that just meant turn around and come back. Will you just turn around and come back? Turn around and come back, therefore. In other words, because of what you've just seen, not just a demonstration of power, but a demonstration of will and intention for your life. If you want this restoration, wonder, amazement, the very person you crucified is the source of it. He's the author of life. But just turn around and come back. It's not too late. So he says, turn around and come back, therefore, that your sins may be blotted out, completely obliterated, not an issue with God anymore, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of of the Lord. Right now, just times of, if you just turn around and come back, your sins would not be an issue with God, and you'll begin to walk a little bit even now. Times of refreshing a little bit even now from Jesus' presence in your life, Jesus' presence right now. But then he says the real zinger, and that he may send the Christ, the anointed king, appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until, now catch this, until the time for restoring all the things, not just a crippled person, but restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago, which the Old Testament prophesied long ago. Peter's saying, look, this is a picture This is an example. You're crippled, and you can have your life restored to the beauty and the wonder and the amazement. If you just turn around and come back, your sins won't be an issue with God, and you'll have times of refreshing now from the presence of the risen Lord, but you will be in a story that has an incredible future, in a story when the Messiah comes back and brings his kingdom back to earth and brings the beautiful back that was intended, when he brings the wonder and the amazement that was intended to replace the crippled and the death and the thorns and thistles and dust of this Genesis 3 world. If you want to be in that story, just turn around and come back. And so this is what he's saying is Jesus' will for you. Beautiful, wonder, amazement. If you'll just Take hold of the hand of the author of life. I was talking to a missionary from China a couple years ago. He was speaking at our church out there in the cafe at a group. And I talked to him there, just me and him one-on-one. And I said, you know, what's it like to be a missionary in China? You know, communist Chinese and you know, all that kind of stuff. Kind of their antipathy toward Christianity. What's it like? He goes, you know, it's really weird. They let you preach on anything you want to preach on in the Bible. No problems. Everything, forgiveness, resurrection of Jesus death, all that, except one thing you can't preach on, ever. And that's the return of Jesus. That's interesting. I thought, I wonder why that is. He goes, well, it's not hard to figure it out. That the, once you have that as the end of your story, that changes how you see everything. That changes the control you give everything else in your life. If that's the end of your story, that changes how you see, it changes your life. 
Because no matter how much you, you lose the dream of your life, you know your best days are ahead of you. It changes how you view suffering in your life. It changes how you view FOMO. There's no FOMO with that story. The restoration of all things. It changes how you see the way our culture keeps score. It changes how you see all of it because you start to realize that the resurrected Jesus has ascended to heaven and he is building his kingdom and he's going to bring a resurrected new humanity when he returns in a resurrected world restored to beauty and wonder and amazement. And it's already begun because he has already risen in his, with his body. His body has already risen from death. He's the first of the new beginning. It's already happened. It's happening. That's why the night before Jesus was crucified, he took this ancient meal called Passover and he talked about that Passover meal, the deliverance of the, Egypt, of the Israelites from the Egyptians and the, the, bringing them through the parted Red Sea and all that. That's what that meal was about. And he took the bread of that meal and he said, this bread is my body given for you. He took the wine at that meal and he said, this is my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, do this, when you eat this, when you take this, when you drink this, when you touch this, when you smell this, you are reminding yourself physically with your body's senses of what my body has already done for you. Do this in remembrance of me, that I am the author of life. When you come to me, my body is your guarantee of the restoration of your body, the restoration of all things, to beautiful and wonderful and amazing if you just come to me. So if you're somebody who wants to come to Jesus, you believe he's the author of life, you want to come forward and be a part of this symbol that he gave you to remind you of this bigger story. We invite you to come whenever you can, whenever you want. If you come forward, you'll notice on the stool there's a little bowl of little plastic things. That's grape juice and gluten-free wafers if you want that instead. Otherwise, if you want to kind of do the bigger display that we do, you can break off a piece of bread and dip it in the wine that's in our hands and then just eat that. Or you can dip it in the juice that's on the stools and then eat that. And you don't need to say anything. You can return to your seat. Always when we do communion here, we remember those who really are in need physically in our community. And so we have a special fund that you can give to these little black boxes in these towers kind of thing, these little stands on your way out of the auditorium. It says Mercy Fund. All the money put in there goes to a separate account used to help the needs of those who need it in our community. Those who are going to come forward, would you come forward? Now? Those who are going to help serve communion, sorry. Don't everybody come forward. Uh, with those who are going to help serve communion, would you come forward? Let me pray. God, we thank you that Jesus has already done it. He's died so that our sins can be blotted out so that we can have restoration in our body. He's risen from the dead so that we can have this restoration to beautiful and wonderful and amazing, not just our bodies, but this entire world when Jesus returns and brings his kingdom. And so we remember through the bread and the wine today. In Jesus' name, amen. People of God, come when you're ready.